Hello everybody, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and we are finally going to do another episode of Groomer Schools. And so this will be Groomer Schools number five. Um, Previous episodes in this kind of mini-series included a summary of the kind of communist uses and experience with sex education. That's the first one. The second one discussed the idea of the overcoming of childhood innocence uh, as an educational project of queer theory and queer elementary education and queer psychology, um, which is horrifying. The third one talks about the kind of multi-pronged identity politics strategy that ultimately derives from Mao Zedong's identity politics to set up a transition to the schools into uh, queer identities for young people using pressures like critical race theory to get them to dislike their skin color and uh, then adopt a celebrated queer identity. And the fourth episode explored Drag Queen Story Hour by going through the, again, ultimately horrific academic paper on Drag Queen Story Hour. So I promised soon after I did episode four, a friend of mine asked me if I would cover comprehensive sexuality education, um, which is a project kind of jointly put together by a handful of big institutions, in particular uh, UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which is you can think of largely as an epicenter or the epicenter of comprehensive sexuality education, which it's been one of their big projects to make an international standard for that since roughly 2003. And almost all of this crazy sexuality stuff uh, going on in the schools through comprehensive sexuality education or CSE can be traced back to UNESCO. But there's also UNESCO is in partnership with the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. So yes, the same Planned Parenthood, IPPF, And I'm actually going to be reading some documents uh, or some information from the IPPF and UNESCO uh, in this episode. And um, finally, there's another organization that I'm assuming is German because its name is the Guttmacher Institute that is also seemingly partnered with this. I'm going to actually start this episode by going through uh, the this document published by the Guttmacher Institute. Uh, G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R. If you type that in and type in a definition of comprehensive sexuality education in a search engine, you can find this PDF. It's nine pages. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Um, I'm going to go through the first three pages of it, and then I'm going to mention the role of the IPPF, which is actually involved in this document from the Guttmacher Institute. And I can say that because their logo is emblazoned on several of the only nine pages. And then I actually got the impetus to read a short academic article to you uh, that I came across today about comprehensive sexuality education that draws heavily off of UNESCO so that we can actually see, uh, and this is a legit academic paper in the journal of, let me make sure I get it right, because uh, I don't want to mispronounce what or misspeak on this. It is the, jour- the American Journal of Public Health from 2020. So not exactly this fringe organization uh, talking about this same topic. So you can see we're talking about major organizations, the uh, American Journal of Public Health, so the American Public Health Apparatus, at least on the academic side, UNESCO, the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, and whatever this Guttmacher or Guttmacher Institute is all about. Uh, Kind of behind this comprehensive sexuality education, 
So the short, short version of what you need to understand is that all of this weird queer theory, gender ideology, whatever word you want to use for that. And for the record, once again, gender ideology is a creation. It is a term that is created. It's not gender ideology itself is not a creation. The term gender ideology is a creation of opponents of the thing they're calling gender ideology. They're giving a name to this kind of amalgam of what might be called critical gender theory, which is sort of this um, branch off of feminism mixed with kind of the gender identity theorization that follows from perverts like John Money um, and sexuality theories that follow from Alfred Kinsey, uh, kind of in a related domain, and then mixed in with literal queer theory, kind of as a catch-all term. Anything that has to do with gender somehow and the idea that your gender is totally socially constructed and therefore wholly mutable and in a sense completely detached from the underlying sex of the body, which even to say biological sex, by the way, is ridiculous because there's no other form of sex. There is no other sex than biological sex. So to say biological sex is redundant. It is, in fact, um, the only type of sex there is. So just as a, as a kind of a secondary point there. So all of this queer theory, gender ideology, um, sex and sexuality stuff that's going on in horrifying parents, probably well into including drag queen story hour and so on, all come in this overcoming of childhood innocence covered in the early episodes of this, along with this strategy that we talked about uh, with the, the other two episodes in this series, it really stems through this program called Comprehensive Sexuality Education. And like I said, this pours through UNESCO, its involvement in, in w w with the IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, suggests, given if you go back and listen to my WTF is SEL podcast, where we explored the literally weird occult roots of social emotional learning, which by the way, comprehensive sexuality education is part of the social emotional learning paradigm. It's one of the things social emotional learning is used to do. Um, you'll find that both UNESCO, or the United Nations more broadly, and Planned Parenthood, thus the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, have these other similar weird ties back to exactly the same occult roots as SEL. These are not actually separate things. And so this same occultism now using sex and sexuality uh, is manifesting once again. Uh, if you don't know, the short, short history is that where I trace the roots in that particular podcast of social emotional learning is back to a woman named Alice Bailey, who was an occultist in the early 20th century. But Alice Bailey was a student of an earlier occultist, the founder of the so-called Theosophical Society, whose name was Helena Blavatsky. And Helena Blavatsky is a bizarre character. And Helena Blavatsky um, not only inspired Alice Bailey, who she eventually kicked out of the Theosophical Society because Alice started to do her own channelings and getting her own secret Gnostic wisdom, New Age spirituality, th theosophy nonsense. So she had to be kicked out because she was giving a competing, um, a competing cult interpretation of, of the universe, uh, but also inspired some other major characters in history, Annie Besant, who was a significant player in the Fabian Society, the gradualistic and transformation of society through its institutions that we pin to the long march of the institutions, and we can tie to Mao and Marcuse and Rudi Deutschke and even Antonio Gramsci, also has an element of Fabian socialism. Um, the Fabians 
wanted to do this differently than the Marxists and work in uh, a socialistic program from within the institutions. And and so Annie Besant of the uh, Fabian Socialists was, was deeply embroiled in the Theosophical Society. Uh, famously also, though, and more to this point, was, was Margaret Sanger, who created Planned Parenthood in the first place. And if you go back and listen to that episode, Alice Bailey, in her book on education, which she wrote one of those for her publishing house, which was originally titled The Lucifer Publishing Company, but now operates and later operated under the term Lucis, L-U-C-I-S, Lucius Trust, uh, which is headquartered in a United Nations building and is the primary public print publisher for the United Nations um, and is deeply embroiled in United Nations activities, which is very strange. Uh, but um, if you go back and read Alice Bailey's education book, which is called Education in the New Age, what she actually says about Planned Parenthood, not the organization, but the concept, which would be the same ideas that Margaret Sanger had, is that in essence... Uh, reproduction is happening too fast, and this is in the early 20th century or late 19th century. Reproduction is happening too fast, so we're actually producing more human bodies that have to be occupied by a soul than we have high-quality souls ready to advance spiritually to fill them, and therefore we need to be planning parenthood to make sure that these bodies that are being inhabited with low-quality souls um, aren't that's not happening anymore. And that's the real eugenics program. It's not a f necessarily a physical eugenics program behind the original strategy of Planned Parenthood. And Alice Bailey says this explicitly. She says that the exoteric form of eugenics is very crude and it's not what you're supposed to do. It's the esoteric form where we're doing the planning of the parenthood. She says on the astral plane, uh, I guess through like some kind of ritual sex magic or whatever. And so... What she outlines that I argue in that podcast becomes social-emotional learning. She calls the science of right human relations. That's what's going to be taught through social-emotional learning anyway, is the science of right human relations, which would also include making sure that we're preparing people to, to be the, the vessels for the high-quality souls that are the only ones around because Planned Parenthood is making sure that the low-quality uh, souls don't have bodies to be uh, inhabited, which is really messed up. That's the actual occultist roots of that. And uh, tangentially speaking also, although they didn't work together to my knowledge, um, Blavatsky's work inspired Adolf Hitler. Uh, the swastika, the whole occult race ideology he had, um, all came from Blavatsky and her theories of the so-called five root races, which Alice Bailey took on basically wholesale. Um, so anyway, that's a little tangential, but that's to point out that the IPPF and the United Nations, so UNESCO, are rooted in these exact same occultist ideas. They have a lot to do with sex and sexuality. And so fast forward, now we find UNESCO and the International Planned Parenthood Foundation taking the overwhelming lead on creating comprehensive sexuality education over the last 20 years and forcing it not just into American schools, but schools across the world uh, very successfully. So that's some background for what's going on in groomer schools, which should already horrify you, I think, rather thoroughly. I'm actually horrified just having said it, um, and I already know about it. But I want to look through this document. I wish I had a good title for this document. I guess it's 
this little tiny thing at the top says informational handouts. This is this document from the, Gut, the, the Guttmacher Institute and uh, IPPF. Informational handouts on comprehensive sexuality education, youth-friendly services, gender issues, and sexual rights. And so I'll just read the, the first three pages or so because it outlines what, what CSE is about. Um, and if you want a lot more information about CSE, I strongly encourage you to look up uh, Kelly Ski uh, on Twitter. And Ski is S-K-E, not I. She's not going skiing. It's part of her last name. And so you should look her up and uh, see her work on this. But uh, a definition of comprehensive sexuality education. So that's going to give us some grounding. See what they say about it. They say it's a rights-based approach. So that's rights-based. I, I stumbled on that approach to comprehensive sexuality education or CSE seeks to equip young people with the knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values they need to determine and enjoy their sexuality physically and emotionally, individually, and in relationships. So listening to that, you might have forgot that this is talking about educating children, but just remember that. It views sexuality holistically. We've talked at length on the podcast and in my, my other materials that this holistic word is a watchword because the part and the whole are the intrinsic opposites that um, all of this kind of Hegelian hermetic magic have to work with. The, the holistic means Marxist is what it's going to ultimately mean. Or actually, it actually means hermetic. And Marxism derives its hermeticism from Hegel. And Hegel talked about holism in the exact same way. But you see it throughout the Marxist stuff. So we've talked about holism before. But if you sexuality holistically, which means that you can't understand sexuality separate from anything else. It's not that there's aspects of sexuality that can be considered uh, separate nor is it that sexuality can be considered separate from life. It's not a part, it's an intrinsic part of the whole, uh, of a much broader whole. So it views sexuality, comprehensive sexuality education, views sexuality holistically as a part of young people's emotional and social development. So again, if you got lost, this is actually about teaching children. And it's concerned with their emotional and social development. So the plug-in into social-emotional learning is obvious. It recognizes that information alone is not enough. I wonder what it will offer in addition to information. Practice, maybe? Young people need to be given the opportunity to acquire essential life skills and develop positive attitudes and values. Now, this is a technique that gets used in their writing a lot and in their speaking a lot, and I want to draw attention to it before we go further. Young people need to be given the opportunity to acquire essential life skills and develop positive attitudes and values. This is a technique that is being used. That is a very bland, very vague statement that's very difficult to disagree with. In other words, if you know the Mott and Bailey strategy that we've talked about so many times before, I'm not going to go through it again. You should look it up. That's M-O-T-T-E and B-A-I-L-E-Y. Mott and Bailey strategy. I'm not going to tell you what it is again. This is setting up the Mott. So if you challenge this, they will come back with this sentence in hand and show somebody important what problem would you have with this statement that young people need to be given the opportunity to acquire essential life skills and develop positive attitudes and values? Are you against young people learning essential life skills, having that opportunity and developing positive attitudes? Or is it the values that, they don't, that you don't want them to have? That's how they're going to turn around the attack. 
Nobody could disagree with that. By the way, you'll notice that the reactionary movement on the right does this exact same technique. They put out a lot of statements that are impossible to disagree with, especially from within their camp, but that they actually have more content behind them. Because if we back up one sentence here, or actually no, two sentences here, we remember that we're actually talking about considering holistic sexuality education as a part of children's social and emotional development. So when it says that they need to have the opportunity to acquire essential life skills, that means about sex. And develop positive attitudes, that means about sex. And values, that means according to somebody and their values about sex, which all gets left out of that sentence. So when you say this is perverse, they will challenge you with this bland statement. And this entire definition, by the way, is bogus. It's just completely bland. It doesn't actually say that the, the comprehensive sexuality education is teaching children very specific, peculiar things about sex and sexuality so that it can do certain things with their uh, emotional and physical and uh, um, social health or attitudes in life or values. Uh, remember, it is it seeks to equip young people with the knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values they need to determine and enjoy their sexuality. So that's a technique, and you should be aware of this. They make very difficult to disagree with statements in the abstract that have very serious meanings in the concrete. And remember, Hegel's dialectic is always moving from the abstract through to the concrete. And so that means they are hiding the real ball from you with this bland language that puts you to sleep. Never forget that their language is designed to put you to sleep because then either you won't read it and you won't know what they're up to or you'll fall asleep and get lost and bored in the middle and you can't maintain the mental focus necessary to string together that that punchline to that paragraph is not comprehensible without understanding the entire paragraph before it and much of the context it's going to follow. It's intentionally vague. They go on to say, Comprehensive sexuality education covers a broad range of issues relating to the physical, biological, emotional, and social aspects of sexuality. So they told us nothing about it yet again, just that it covers a broad range of issues. It touches on virtually everything because it's holistic. This approach recognizes and accepts all people as sexual beings. Well, that's a very bold statement because toddlers are people. Six-year-olds are people, right? So all of a sudden, this gets really strange because it's very specific. All people. This approach recognizes and accepts all people. Sounds like it's very inclusive and unobjectionable. This approach recognizes and accepts all people as sexual beings and is concerned with more than just the prevention of disease or pregnancy. Well, they're telling you a lot there because all people and the context underneath this is already education, which means children. And they've already said young people um, more than once multiple times, as a matter of fact. Then it says that they are sexual beings, and this is not just about kind of medical sex education. It's not about the prevention of disease and pregnancy. It's concerned with more than that, because they are sexual beings. Do you see? This is perverse, but it's very difficult to see if you're not really sharp on it why it's perverse. So they say that Comprehensive sexuality education programs should be adapted to the age and stage of development of the target group. Let me throw some color on that. That's called a disclaimer, because if you recall, the second episode in this podcast series, Groomer Schools itself, 
covered the idea that they are trying to apply queer theory to developmental psychology to queer those developmental stages so that they can say that sexual agency might be absolutely appropriate, age appropriate, and developmentally appropriate for five-year-olds. So they are trying to do a disclaimer that puts you at ease and you think, well, they obviously are going to do this in a responsible manner. Let me ask you a question. Is anything they do responsible? Is it done responsibly? Hell no. They violate every norm they can. In fact, the definition of queer theory is violating norms. The definition of the theory behind all of it is violating norms. So they are not going to respect norms in a responsible manner. But you feel like it because they told you, oh, well, it will be adapted to the age and stage of development of the target group. Meanwhile, their colleagues and maybe even some of the same people are working to transform the age and stage of development of target groups standards so that they can do literally whatever they want, a.k.a. grooming in the schools, which is why we call this series Groomer Schools. Says CSE must help young people to, so remember, this is going to be age and stage appropriate. One, acquire accurate information on sexual and reproductive rights, information to dispel myths, and references to resources and services. Okay, let's unpack it because we have to unpack it. We know every woke everything contains an agenda. There's always a concealed agenda beneath the surface. This is why it takes so long and so much effort to read this. And then when you tell people what it means, because you figure out what it actually means, they call you a conspiracy theorist and they can convince a lot of people that you are a conspiracy theorist because it doesn't literally say that. This is called using coded language. You'll notice they accuse everybody. Iron Law of Woke Projection never misses of using dog whistles and coded language all the time. Uh Uh-huh. That's because they do. That's how they do things. So they think everybody must do that. And they, they are the, obviously the master code breakers. So CSE, the first thing isn't anything about medical or disease prevention or pregnancy or safety in the physical act of sex or sexuality, which is already a, you know, contentious issue in education and has been, although they like to pretend that that's a settled issue. It's not. It's still contentious. A lot of people are still not happy with it. A lot of parents still opt their, their kids out of it, not even knowing that it's become this playground of perversity. But the first priority is to acquire accurate information on what? On sexual and reproductive rights. On your sexual and reproductive rights. It has nothing to do with medical anything, with disease prevention, with pr- safety, with protection, with preventing pregnancy, which is, by the way, how they always sell it. It's now about teaching children what they call accurate information, which we know that that means their bullshit is the only thing considered accurate and everything else is false, about their sexual and reproductive rights, uh, which we'll see later has to do with what they call sexual citizenship. Information to dispel myths. Well, that's again, according to their theory, what they think everything that they don't like called, you know, normalcy, decency, um, not being degenerate is a myth. And then they say references to resources and services. I wonder which services we might reference people to if the document is provided by the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. I wonder where they might go get services. Hmm. They don't say that. They don't say here that they're going to give you references to UNESCO and Planned Parenthood propaganda or pornography, which literally this there are programs tied up to this as I was searching for this to find, you know, extra information directly tied to, say, Pornhub. Um, 
this is happening in schools. There are actually people that are, are giving links that when you go to them, the first things that pop up are links to Pornhub. So resources for information on sexual and reproductive rights. And then services. And we know that services in this domain include, first of all, Planned Parenthood. that's trying to work its way into our schools with the backing of the United Nations through UNESCO and their weird partnership, but also things like the Trevor Project, which will help make sure that your children can secretly behind your back with lots of protection, get all their so-called questions answered uh, about transition, for example. They bill themselves as a suicide prevention hotline, but as parents posing as 12-year-olds have uncovered repeatedly, you can get these people talking to you about cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers and social transition in a matter of minutes with no effort. So that's why I don't call it the Trevor Project. I call it the Groomer Project, which recently uh, on Twitter the other day from when I'm recording this, Hillary, or no, it's not, not Hillary, Chelsea Clinton came out strongly in defense of the Trevor Project. So these are the kinds of resources and services. By the way, the Trevor Project was listed, as I think I've mentioned in the past, as one of the most innovative uh, platforms by the World Economic Forum as well with regard to um, kind of uh, educational technology services that uh, impinge on inclusive behaviors. I don't have that document up on my, my laptop anymore, or I would read it to you directly, but they were listed as one of, I think, 14 or something like that, innovative uh, programs. So all of the usual players are all tied up in a funny knot around this. So secondly, develop life skills, including critical thinking. Now we did a whole podcast because let's stop and unpack that. We'll start this sentence again. When they say critical thinking, they mean critical theory. In fact, they have an entire paper that's devoted. And I read the crucial set of paragraphs to you in a bullet, which is a new discourses bullet, which is the difference between critical thinking and critical theory, which you should probably go listen to because you have to understand that when they say these things, they're tricking you. They are, they know they're tricking you. They are tricking you. They know you're, they're tricking you. And if you don't know they're tricking you, you're going to get tricked. And if you do know they're tricking you, you're still probably going to get tricked. So critical thinking, they actually, the woke actually hate it. They're actually against it. They're openly against it because they say that it allows people to defend their epistemic home turf. That's the, that's the quote. So in other words, it allows you to argue back against their stuff and reassert power dynamics. And they say that critical thinking is actually brewed up out of the Western tradition and thus it reinforces Western hegemony. And it's frequently used to cast dispersions on marginalized groups like racial and sexual minorities. Critical theory, on the other hand, always calls into question power dynamics, and it does all of its analysis through power dynamics. The generative themes that we saw in the uh, Drag Queen Story Hour paper that are derived from Paolo Ferreri, the idea with that is that you're always going to bring up a generative theme so you can present the teacher as facilitator when I'll present the critical interpretation. In other words, a power dynamic political interpretation, the Marxist interpretation or cultural or social Marxist interpretation of whatever happens to be in front of the kids. So light, develop life skills, including critical thinking. Yep. Loaded communication and negotiation, self-development and decision-making. I'm willing to bet self-development here means masturbating. Just going to go out on a limb sense of self confidence, assertiveness, ability to take responsibility, ability to ask questions and seek help, and of course, last but not least, empathy. Empathy is their grand excuse for 
everything they do because of course they're weaponizing it. oh but if you don't do this think of the poor people you're going to hurt don't you want kids to be more empathetic don't you want them to care more no actually i'm going to tell you right now having watched what the self-esteem movement and education has done for the last 40 years and watching what's happening with this woke crap i want our kids to care a lot less i want them to care more about succeeding more care more about uh, achievement care more about growing up healthy and happy and a lot less about everybody else's damn feelings maybe a little less poisoned empathy would be really great but empathy is their magic word it's like in the climate change thing how the word emissions is the magic spell that makes you have to pay attention and do whatever they say well empathy is the magic word here okay so third nurture positive attitudes and values as defined by who the sex positive queer theorists that's who Nurture positive attitudes and values, including open-mindedness. Well, we're talking about teaching children about sex. So why are we calling this the Groomer School series? Let's be real careful about teaching open-mindedness about sex to children with weirdos. Maybe we should be less open-minded there too. But how are you going to argue with that? You're going to sound like a jackass. No, I want my kids to be closed-minded. I want them to be little bigots. Yeah, that's what they're going to accuse you of. So nurture positive attitudes and values, including open-mindedness, respect for self and others. Of course, that respect for others means bowing to the inclusivity demands. Positive self-worth and esteem. We just, I just impugned the self-esteem movement in education. Comfort, non-judgmental attitude. Remember, they're teaching kids about sex and including probably kink. You might need some judgmental attitudes coming back into the place, but they're trying to get rid of them. Sense of responsibility and positive attitude toward their sexual and reproductive health. They want to teach children to have positive attitudes toward their sexual health. They are children. Let me make something clear. They do not have sexual health. They are children. So they're going to teach them to have a positive attitude about this thing so that they're going to have to tell them what it is and try to wake it up which will be age and developmentally appropriate according to the way that queer theory has queered age and developmental appropriateness. Do you understand how they play these games? Oh, the title of this is at the bottom in tiny letters. Develop, it's the Demystifying Data Toolkit for Comprehensive Sexuality Education put forth by the Guttmacher uh, Institute. Like I said, it is got some conjunction with the International Planned Parenthood Foundation because their logo shows up in this later. Okay, so this that's their definition. Here's what I actually wanted to read to you from this document primarily, the seven essential components of comprehensive sexuality education. And I'll tell you that these seven are the reason why this podcast didn't come out a year ago, even though I didn't know about the paper that I'm going to read primarily here. And that's because um, Kelly sent me this, and I looked at it, and I was like, every one of these is huge and loaded and complicated, and there's so much. I could do like... I would take months to study this, and then I could do like two hours on each one of these categories. And there are seven of them. I don't know how to do this. So I just eventually got overwhelmed, and I'm busy with 20 other things, and I forgot to do it. And so here we are. I'm just going to kind of run through this as a seven-point summary bullet list so I can then get to this other stuff. So the seven essential components of comprehensive sexuality education. Before I actually read what it says on this document, I'm going to bounce over to this other document, um, which is actually... The IPPF, uh, sorry, IPPF, that's International Planned Parenthood Foundation, uh, Framework for Comprehensive Sexuality Education. It's their official document. It says, From Choice, A World of Possibilities. It shows a bunch of kids looking at a book together, like no children actually read a book. It looks like a textbook, and they all look so happy on a bridge. 
this doesn't happen in reality and that's their propaganda but whatever um and i say children these are teenagers blatantly teenagers uh wearing very teenagery clothes um so this is international planned parenthood framework for comprehensive sexuality education i'm not going to read to you the who we are the table of contents and all this crap but they have a, the seven essential components of sexuality education so how to use this document right from the top it says this document reflects current ippf thinking on the different important elements of comprehensive sexuality education identified as the following one gender and we're going to come back and read the uh, Guttmacher Institute where these are expanded upon. One, gender. Two, sexual and reproductive health and HIV, which, by the way, is the thing that you think you're getting with sex ed. It's just one of seven things. Three, sexual rights and sexual citizenship, which is a term you've probably never heard before, sexual citizenship, except when I said it five minutes ago. And you're probably reeling a little bit in your brain around the concept of sexual citizenship for children. And you should be. Four, pleasure. Five, violence. Six, diversity, of course. Seven, relationships. And they go on a little further down. I mean, of course, the rights of young people is a section. IPPF is committed to the provision and promotion of youth-friendly services, which are easily available to all young people, irrespective of their age, sex, marital status, or financial situation. IPPF recognizes the right of all young people to enjoy sex and express their sexuality in the way that they choose. Okay, this is the rights of young people in the same document. They uh, have a number of points on their youth policy. Information should be, I'm going to skip a little bit here, but information should be accessible to children and young people of all ages in accordance with their evolving capacities, which are being queered, by the way. Whether sexually active or not, and irrespective of sexual orientation, young people should be given the information to enable them to feel comfortable and confident about their bodies and their sexuality. Young people is can mean children. Comprehensive sexuality that helps, this is one of the rights, comprehensive sexuality that helps young people acquire the skills to negotiate relationships and safer sexual practices, including whether and when to engage in sexual intercourse, should be available. Broad-based strategies are needed to address young people both in and out of school. Special attention should be paid to the most disadvantaged young people, and they draw all of this uh, off of the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child 2, is what it says, and it, which states that children and young people have the right to enjoy the highest attainable health, access to health facilities in Article 24, and access to information which will allow them to make decisions about their health in Article 17, including family planning, Article 24. Somehow that returned into sexual pleasure. Young people also have the right to be heard, express opinions, and be involved in decision-making, Article 12. They have the right to education, which will help them learn, develop, and reach their full potential and prepare them to be understanding and tolerant toward others, Article 29. Additionally, young people have the right not to be discriminated against, Article 2. So I'm thinking, having read that, that the only justification for the majority of sex comprehensive sexuality education lies right here in Article 29, having to be very broadly construed, which is that they have the right to education which will help them learn, develop, and, quote, reach their full potential apparently sexually, reach their full potential is extraordinarily open-ended in terms of what it could mean. But these are the rights of young people, according to the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. Um, they give a definition of comprehensive sexuality education. We'll come back to these seven points as they define them. 
Uh, it turns out to be exactly the same thing that I read just a moment ago. So the Guttmacher Institute is using the IPPF definition. Uh, now that I'm looking at it, um, literally exactly the same, literally exactly the same. Um, so there's seven essential. So I'm assuming these seven essential, uh, components are going to be exactly the same as well, whether we read them from the IPPF document or we read them from the Guttmacher Institute summary. And those are, again, the seven are just to rattle them off one gender, two sexual and reproductive health and HIV, three sexual rights and sexual citizenship, four pleasure, five violence, six diversity and seven relationships. So the IPPF is deeply involved in this. The Guttmacher Institute is involved in this. UNESCO is involved in this since we're going to hear in the academic paper in the end. The fact of the matter is that these are being implemented into our schools also through apparently uh, public health initiatives. So all these youth mental health initiatives that they're trying to push into the schools, the resiliency programs we're hearing about, all of these things are going to be um, part and parcel with uh with, with, with moving all of this crap in. Okay. So useful resources. Remember they said you have the right to resources. What is the, what does the IPPF offer you? Well, they offer the, uh, the sex education forum in the UK, CECUS, which is a fairly well known to be communist front organization that teaches, uh, it is the sexuality information and education council in the United States. That's S E I C U S. You can go see how horrible they are. Um, Advocates for Youth, Planned Parenthood itself, the Population Council, which is an international nonprofit, non-governmental organization that conducts biomedical, social science, and public health research. I wonder what they're really about as the Population Council. The Guttmacher Institute is listed here. Who are they? They're a nonprofit organization focused on sexual and reproductive health research, policy analysis, and public education. The Guttmacher Institute publishes perspectives on sexual and reproductive health, international family planning perspectives, the Guttmacher Report on Public Policy, and special reports on topics pertaining to sexual and reproductive health rights. Uh, let's see, eldest health, uh, health key issues. Uh, UNFPA, which is, if I can figure out what in the world this is, I'm guessing that this is a uh, United Nations thing because it starts in UN, but it doesn't decode it. I'm not looking it up. Action Health Incorporated, World Association for Sexual Health, which is worldsexology.org. I'm sure that's wonderful. And genderhealth.org. Those are direct relevant organizations that count as research references. Notice Planned Parenthood was right on the list, like I alleged earlier. So curriculum resources for peer educators include the Guide to Implementing Teens for AIDS Prevention, the IPPF, again, that's International Planned Parenthood Foundation, Peer Education Handbook on Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights, um, Peer Education Training of Trainers, Youth Peer Education Network, European Guidelines for Youth AIDS Peer Education, included involved, inspired, a framework for youth peer education programs. Then there are curriculum resources for teachers. And this goes on and on and on. There's tons and tons of resources, curriculum resources for providers, curriculum resources for parents, curric- assessment and evaluation resources, and other useful resources. And again and again and again, we see Planned Parenthood. Oh, here's UNESCO, of course. Um, this is kind of the who's who of, of the problem. But anyway, let's let's return to our Guttmacher Institute and read the seven essential components of comprehensive sexuality education, which they derive from the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, which is also working in conjunction with UNESCO to bring this into the schools. 
One, gender. So what they explain is the difference between gender and sex, exploring gender roles and attributes. So we're already to gender ideology and in fact, critical gender ideology. Gender roles, exploring gender roles and, and attributes means critical theory of gender, that the idea is first you're going to, there's a difference between gender and sex, then gender roles and attributes are going to be explored. What they're going to teach is that gender roles are socially constructed. They are not anything to do with your underlying biological sex, which again is redundant. We shouldn't even say it, your underlying sex, and that um, they are being imposed upon you by a society that thinks we should, that men should be certain ways and women should be certain ways. Going on to underscore what I just said, understanding perceptions of masculinity and femininity within the family and across the life cycle. So, of course, this is ample opportunity for them to engage in one of their favorite practices that we now know of, especially in groomer school territory, which is to listen to the way they word it. Perceptions of masculinity and femininity, do they say within society? No, within the family. So they're going to want to attack. Your family doesn't really understand this. So they're going to use this opportunity in the gender category, exactly like we've been saying for years, to create a wedge in children between uh, them and their parents, where the teachers are the, the facilitators in this this operatives in this nasty CSE program are going to be set up as the good guys and the parents are going to be set up as the backwards ignorant bad guys who are against them for not understanding the up-to-date quote-unquote science of gender which is fake because gender isn't even real gender doesn't exist gender is a story gender doesn't exist there is sex um, the thing that we have sex right and so we are male or female and if we are male then we have a number of primary sex characteristics that have to do with our gametes. They have to do with, uh, so the sex cells that we produce have to do with our sexual reproductive organs. And then women have, you know, others. So testes versus ovaries and so on. We know how this works. These are called primary sex characteristics. It's the reproductive systems that you have. Those are, those aren't a spectrum. Those are binary. There's one or the other. Sometimes there are anomalies, biological anomalies. But there's either one or the other. There is no in-between. There's no part way. There's no anything. Then you have the, those are primary sex characteristics. Then there are what are called secondary sex characteristics. Primary sex characteristics, by the way, are the things that are observed at birth. You are not assigned a sex at birth. You are, uh, your sex is observed at birth. Because there is a very small percentage of sex anomalies that happen as, as, as a form literally of birth defects, occasionally... That, uh, that that observation is misleading. And that's all of the ground that they play in to pretend that none of this is real. Okay. And then so later you go through puberty and your body develops. So before puberty, you are a child. You have a child's body, male bodies and female bodies, other than their reproductive organs, which are underdeveloped, undeveloped at this point, are the same. At puberty, they start to differentiate into what are called secondary sex, through the development of what are called secondary sex characteristics. Secondary sex characteristics include the development of the breast, body hair, the growth and dissension of the testes and penis and so on and so forth. Uh, the broadening of the jaw, the deepening of the voice for men, the building out of, uh, of an adult male frame, which is caused by surging levels of testosterone flowing through the body, the development of the female body to be uh, of reproductive capacity. These are secondary sex characteristics. Now, what you'll notice is what the reason I'm doing this biology lesson here, by the way, which isn't really my thing, is very simple. It's because primary sex characteristics are fully binary. 
that's it. They're each your secondary sex characteristics, however, there's like a, a, a distribution. I'm trying to avoid mathematical terminology being too specific. There's a distribution in terms of how they grow. Um, penises grow to different sizes, breasts grow to different sizes, voices drop to different degrees, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's some variation so that you end up with some men looking quite effeminate in certain regards and some women looking a little bit masculine in certain regards and vice versa. Okay. So there is some overlap in external appearances. This doesn't negate the fact that your sex is still your sex and your secondary sex characteristics are still actually observable. They're just distributed a little more broadly. The thing that much of, I should say, much of the thing that gets called gender would best be described, in my opinion, as something called tertiary sex characteristics, which is not something that you find in the biological literature, um, which are going to include even more subtle features with even uh, more varied distributions. So psychological traits, uh, questions like why do we find in highly gender egalitarian societies like, uh, Norway or Sweden, why do we find that, uh, 90% roughly of engineers are male and 90% roughly of nurses are female? Why do we find these kinds of facts? And it's because there are subtle personality differences between males and females with quite a lot of overlap in between. And that's fine but that doesn't negate anything about sex. It doesn't complicate sex. And it's not this mystical thing called gender. It's just a more varied, a higher, literally a distribution, distributions, male and female distributions with higher variance in terms of how the traits can present without, uh, without there being an anomaly present. And that doesn't make gender real. It's in fact a derivative of sex overwhelmingly. There are cultural aspects that get worked in, but it's nowhere near, nowhere near, nowhere near what, um, what the social constructivists and queer theory want it to be or believe it to be. So that's very important to point out. So gender isn't even real, but anyway, understanding perceptions of masculinity and femininity within the family and across the life cycles where we left off. The next one, society's changing norms and values. See, what they want to do is point out that, you know, perhaps in the past that we had certain views about sex or gender, what it meant to be manly, what it meant to be female, and those change over time. Therefore, they are wholly socially constructed. Whereas a matter of fact, they're more like a distribution that, re that reflects an underlying biological reality that has some wiggle room in it um, that can take on different outward expressions. You could imagine a culture where for whatever reason women never wear dresses, they always wear pants, and but they still would dress in feminine looking clothing. And this doesn't negate anything. They have to adopt very specific sex stereotypes in order to even be able to, to, to get off the ground with any of this. But they want people to believe that society's norms and values change, and therefore they can be changed, and therefore, in fact, that they can be changed however we wish. They can be socially engineered into something that they're not, and that's what they want to do with your kids through CSE. And then they say manifestations and consequences of gender bias because the current values are bad and they're biased. This is, this is a standard dialectical inversion technique. And then stereotypes and inequality, including self-stigmatization. That's what they're going to cover in gender. Second, and I don't want to bog this down because I do want to get to this paper. Two, sexual and reproductive health and HIV. This is what you think you're buying, or at least it might expand beyond it. But when you think of sex ed, this is the thing that they you probably think you're buying and might even not be comfortable with the school doing. 
and it's only one of the seven, right? The whole gender unicorn thing we just covered, that whole thing, the genderbred person stuff, that was in number one. That's not even this. And they consider that somehow, in fact, to be more important. What is under this? Sexual and reproductive health and HIV. Sexuality and the life cycle, that is puberty, menopause, stigma, sexual problems. Now, I would normally, nobody would bat an eye at this, except one of their hypotheses, as a matter of fact, is that if uh, your body goes through puberty and you're, you have a gender identity, which again, doesn't exist, that doesn't match your sex, then you have gone through what's called non-consensual puberty. You didn't consent to go through puberty and have your body transformed into some sex. You didn't consent to the underlying biological realities of your life. And because you didn't consent, this is a problem. So when they talk about puberty, they can really work some crazy stuff into here. Stigma, that gives them a ton of places to play around. Um, so anatomy, that's medical, okay. Reproductive process, that's also medical. That I'm sure that they can come up with some crazy crap to cram into this, but let's be char uh, charitable. How to use condoms and other forms of contraception, including emergency contraception. That's one of those really controversial things that we don't know if we want them teaching, but you've seen probably some of the videos of what actually happens in school, and it's pretty weird. Um, you have people putting condoms onto things physically, first of all, not just being instructed in how they work, practicing this. Um, but you've also, I don't know if you've seen some of the videos where there are people like kind of very sexually doing this. Again, with children. Pregnancy options and information, you know, yeah, but remember this is pushed by the Planned Parenthood, so maybe we don't want them doing that. Um, legal and safe abortion. Well, of course I had to put that. Unsafe abortion, that's what Republicans want. That's how they'll teach it. Understanding HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, STIs, including transmission and symptoms. That's something that you would think that I got to go through, of course, in school that could be taught medically, but it could also open up the entire door to talk about the uh, social constructivist view of HIV, probably not impugning Dr. Fauci as should be done, but as a matter of fact, like Foucault did as a way to have stigmatized and, and, and done terrible things uh, to, to gays. It's an open door. HIV and STI prevention, treatment, care, and support. That is one of these things that you would think, yeah, that's what sex ed is for. And so fine, like scare the kids about gonorrhea, but teach them about it for real or whatever. But as a matter of fact, you got to actually care because they actually want to destigmatize those that might come up later. They actually have the whole push to destigmatize herpes, destigmatize sexual uh, transmitted diseases. And yikes, like, no, having a STD is bad, I guess, or STIs now, Ooh because we got to call them infections, not diseases, because somebody's feelings might get freaking hurt. Okay, well, having an STD, still bad, still gross, still not good, still, I don't, we maybe should maintain that stigma, but that could be tucked into here, right? Okay, um, when they're talking about that. Antiretroviral therapy and living with HIV. That seems like a pretty intense topic for teaching to children. So let's say, kids, you do get AIDS. What are you going to have to do? Here's all the medical stuff that's going to cost you $20,000. Why is that here? Prevention, but probably because Planned Parenthood is obsessed with it. And of course, um, they want it to be destigmatized as California has already worked as a state to do. Prevention of mother to child transmission. Again, that seems really um, granular for teaching children. Injection, drug use, and HIV. Well, we covered that. Virginity, abstinence, and faithfulness. So, so that's probably going to crap all over conservatives and Christians. 
uh, and say why abstinence education doesn't work. Uh, sexual response seems like something that doesn't need to be covered with the kids in the school. I don't really want that happening. Uh, I don't know that everybody would be comfortable with that. I'm pretty socially liberal, and that's like, yeesh, don't be talking to my kids about sexual response. Like, there's a ton of gross stuff that could be going on there. Uh, social expectations, uh-oh, wide open door. Self-esteem and empowerment, go to hell with your freaking self-esteem and empowerment shit. We're done with this. Anywhere that shows up, just that's all got to get canceled. Respect for the body, I don't need any body positivity thrown into this. We're supposed to be talking about, like, STDs and, and not getting pregnant. Myths and stereotypes, yet again, wide open door for all the woke crap that they want to cram in. Three, now the, the the money shot, really, in a sense. This one's actually, it's not. It gets worse. Um, four is the worst one. Three, sexual rights and sexual citizenship. Again, I draw your attention back to a simple fact that we're talking about children. Children do not have sexual rights. And children are not, nobody is a sexual citizen. This term sexual citizenship is alarming. We're going to actually do a diversion into this before I read what uh, the Guttmacher Institute and Planned Parenthood say about it. So I spent, one of the reasons I dropped out of making this podcast in the first place was trying to figure out what the hell sexual citizenship is. I got some books and I read like a third of one of them and I finally just got so freaking confused uh, that, for, that it means a million things at once, and I just bailed out. Um, so I have this paper, but a couple of things first. A co- another paper and then the, a couple other papers uh, that I found trying to communicate to you what sexual citizenship is. So there's a paper called Sexual Citizenship and Sex Education, and it says that sexual citizenship was originally used to describe LGBTQ claims to rights Based on identity relationships and practices, scholars argued that citizenship is predicated on both appropriate public engagement and intimate practices. And sexual citizenship has proved proven useful for mobilizing collective action for queer rights. So, in other words, the idea of, say, um, full citizenship with regard, actually without regard to one's sexuality. So maybe marriage equality is something to do with sexual citizenship, maybe. But here we have another one um, from Columbia uh, University's magazine, Columbia Magazine, Raising Strong Sexual Citizens. And they start off by saying that sexual citizenship refers to people's right to say yes to the sex they want and no to the sex they don't want as well as their understanding that other people have an equivalent right. And upholding those rights is highly relevant to sexual assault prevention. Now, you'll notice that that has to do with consent. That's absolutely not the same thing we just talked about. That has nothing to do with your full participation in civil society or your full access to participation in in the, the civil society based on your sexuality. This is something completely different. This is actually... Uh, probably a more accurate sexual citizenship refers to a thing that should be called sexual agency. Uh, the ability as an adult, it doesn't even say that, should say, to your ability to say yes or no to sexual activity that you do or don't want. And that every, we ha- all of us have these rights, and those would be inviolable. A third one from DePaul University. Sexual citizenship is an acknowledgement that all humans are sexual beings. 
and it is one's responsibility to learn and grow for themselves, their partners, and the world where our communities exist. Well, that's something completely different yet again, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it what, what does this mean? The notion of, this is from a European university, the notion of sexual citizenship emphasizes the often neglected interplay between regimes of sexuality and citizenship regimes, thus representing an important contribution to the studies of citizenship. And on and on it goes. So it means a bunch of stuff at once, and it's really difficult to pare down what exactly it means. Now, certainly it does have something to do with your ability to act as a sexual agent, as the one definition uh, mentions. It also definitely has something to do with this idea of full civic participation. We have this paper here about rethinking sexual citizenship that says another strand of work conceives of sexual citizenship primarily as being primarily about rights to participation in consumer society linked to marketization and the consumption of goods and services. In one of the early works on sexual citizenship, Evans from 1993, for example, argued that sexual citizenship is materially constructed through the dynamics of late capitalism. Oh, so it's Marxist. It's all a Marxist idea, in particular through the practices of consumption. He states that, quote, sexual citizenship involves partial, private, and primarily leisurely and lifestyle membership, where sexual citizenship rights are chiefly expressed through, quote, participation in commercial private territories. Others Bell and Binney in 2000 make a similar argument claiming that the, quote, power that, peer, that queer citizens enjoy is largely dependent on access to capital and credit. And so we have a lot of different definitions of sexual citizenship. So what I finally concluded with this, and more, more or less just punted, other than the sexual agency part, which is extremely important because we're talking about children being claimed to be able to consent to sex that they want, which would be extended to them if the child wants it, then it's okay. That's a f very common argument in the pedophilic land, the so-called minor attracted person land, the so-called deconstructionist or postmodern or Foucauldian view of age of consent is that, well, if the child is objecting, then it's bad, it's pedophilia, and it's horrible. But if the child actually wants it, then it's good, and it can be a very nourishing experience. And this is a horrific argument, um, because children can't consent. Children cannot consent. So the child wanting it cannot be considered a legitimate basis for giving consent. Whether And then, of course, if you've talked to anybody who has experienced grooming, literal sexual grooming as a child, the whole game is to get the child to act like they want it. That's the whole game. Otherwise, it would just be outright rape instead of kind of a grooming child rape. It would, the whole game is to get the child to express that they want it. And that's, there's the, the child, the point is that the child has been groomed into this and cannot do that. And even the left broadly, except for the Foucauldian left, broadly understands that that is a horrific crime. But sexual citizenship beyond that, which is not something to just set aside like, oh yeah, that little thing. Sexual citizenship beyond that refers to this idea that your full civic participation in society depends somehow on your sex and sexuality. So you as a man or you as a woman somehow reflects how much full participation in both public, in other words, political life and 
uh, economic or consumer life that you have and what that actually looks like and how it plays out. The idea, for example, that, you know, um, gay people have to concentrate in gay marketplaces would kind of fall under that. You know, so this is one of the arguments for why so many gay people concentrated in San Francisco was because they had kind of a whole gay scene that they could, could, could participate in, in a gay economy and gay vendors and gay this and gay that and the other thing. Okay, so sexual citizenship has something to do with that, but also, again, with suffrage, access to, say, civil unions or marriages, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sexual citizenship. It's the ability for you to be a full participant in civil society, economically and politically. But even further than that, because we have to think about how the communists think about equity in general, is that if your sexuality is being has a stigma imposed upon it or is somehow considered marginal or oppressed, your oppression itself, you have to spend time thinking about being gay. You have to think, spend time thinking about your oppression or navigating your oppression. You have to spend time and energy, and that's time and energy that you can no longer devote to full civic participation as an everyday citizen. So that's a further extended definition of sexual citizenship, and so that full sexual citizenship would mean that those things aren't happening. Okay, so it's a lot of stuff at once. It's a vague term. But three is sexual rights and sexual citizenship. This is the third pillar of comprehensive sexuality education to teach to children. It says knowledge of international human rights. So there's your UN. And national policies, laws, and structures that relate to people's sexuality. So that's understanding where you stand in regard to human rights declarations, uh, sustainable development goals, and local, state, and federal laws, for example. A rights-based approach to sexual and reproductive health. Well, that's interesting. A rights-based approach. It's, it's your fundamental right. Um, you know, life, liberty, and property, that somehow uh, something to do with property and liberty aren't sufficient to deal with this, that we have to have intrinsic rights to sexual and reproductive health. Uh, social and cultural and ethical barriers to exercising rights related to sexual and reproductive health. So that's what I was just talking about in the broad construal. Understanding that sexuality and culture are diverse and dynamic. God, the open door to talk about queer politics there with children is just crazy huge. Available services and resources and how to access them. Welcome back to Planned Parenthood, UNESCO, and CECAS, ladies and gentlemen. Participation. That's just a word on its own. That's one of the categories. Participation in sexual rights and sexual citizenship. Participation. What the hell does that refer to? I'm just going to, I don't know. That could refer to so many things. Practices and norms. Well, they're going to talk about sexual practices and sexual norms with your children in terms of what impacts it has on their full sexual citizenship, apparently. Diversity of sexual identities. Welcome back to the queer pantheon of every flag you can imagine. Advocacy. So activism. Okay. Choice. Well, that's all by itself is one word. Choice about what? Protection. Again, all by itself with no specification of what it means. Negotiation skills. Like, <laughs> like we're going to sit down and have a business deal. Like, what, what do you mean by this? You know, consent and the right to have sex only when you are ready. There's that one definition. The right to freely express and explore one's sexuality in a safe, healthy, and pleasurable way. Well, that better butt up against the fact that other people have the same right, but they're talking about this with children. This is a wide open door to learn to touch yourself, learn to understand yourself as a sexual being. You have a right to do this, blah, blah, blah. This is cru crucial to your growth and development. Groomer schools. 
That's all there is to say. Four, pleasure. Now this one was very difficult. This was actually, I said that the previous one broke me, but I kind of got my head around sexual citizenship. Pleasure is actually rooted in something called pleasure theory. Pleasure theory, of course there's a freaking pleasure theory, is difficult to get one's head around. Looking into it, it seems that there are a few different ideas about what it means, but is it uh, generally is that pleasure is indicative, first of all, that it's a, it's a human right to pursue pleasure. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with that because that is the inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness, at least. Not pleasure, but happiness. But the argument would be that happiness uh, pleasure can serve as a measure or proxy for happiness. And there's a lot of complicated theory trying to talk about those, that relationship specifically pleasure and happiness. Uh, so I do disagree, but I, I note that there is an, uh, that the United States, at least in its declaration of independence recognizes an inalienable right to happiness. Pleasure is like the more hedonic, you know, hedonism version of that. And, and there is a lot of theorizing actually in so-called pleasure theory, explaining how that's not the best understanding that there's a that there's a more eudonic and then a more uh, even erotic understanding and erotic is in the sense of eros uh, which is a much broader thing than just kind of sexy time um, so it also derives though largely from freud who's the famous psychoanalyst but aka a discredited crackpot with ridiculous um, mystical ideas and uh, the thing is and I know that people that are really, really sharp would say, you already talked about the Iron Law of Oak projection, and projection was a Freudian idea. Yeah, it was his best one, actually. Um, a lot of his other stuff, not so good. But he had this theory that learning is guided through pleasure and pain, and it's the carrot stick, if you will. And so a lot of pleasure theory derives from this. But we can't ignore the fact that queer theory uh, follows from both postmodernism but also the critical theory domain and, uh, for example, Herbert Marcuse wrote the book Eros and Civilization in 1955. And if we actually look at, say, you know, the other books from, from the Frankfurt School, you see this huge twisting of the, the, into the Freudian concept of, of eroticism or eros as the actual competitor to death or thanatos. So rather than it being, you know, Jesus defeating death or conquering death, as is in the Bible, or God being the antithesis of death, as in most religions, you now have eros uh, as the opposite of death. And most of most of Marcuse's theories about uh, how societies organize the eros and civilization part, whether it's in that book or later in One Dimensional Man and so on, is that the erotic drive the libido, not just the desire for sex, that libido, but the desire for to just desire in general. Um, the libido is actually the hugely animating force of mankind. And that what's wrong with modern society, industrial society, late industrial society, and consumer society is in fact that we suppress our erotic libido, our our our, our eros, in favor of productivity. So we we channel our erotic energy, we repress actually our erotic energy and turn it into productive work and thus build this marvelous society that's also filled with waste and hate and harm and catastrophe and oppression and oppression and the inability and desire to see that there's a more utopic vision out there that would actually focus on the pleasure principle. So there's a lot going behind pleasure theory. And I started to read into that again about a year ago and I was like, holy crap. And I just, I don't have time or space to get my head around this, but it's 
pillar number four of comprehensive sexuality education for our poor kids. So what, do, what, what does the IPPF and the Guttmacher Institute say about it? They say pleasure, having a positive approach to young people's sexuality, like the groomer alarm is ringing at maximum volume. This is a, this is an eight alarm groomer fire right there. Having a positive approach to young people's sexuality is like groomer, 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 holy crap. Understanding that sex should be enjoyable and consensual. This is with children. I mean, so let me be real. Back in sixth grade, what the hell year was that? 91 or something for me? I don't know, 80, 90, 89 or 90? I don't know. I was in sixth grade and we had our sex ed class. And we had this, this poor lady, I'm sorry I'm doing this to you, madam. You were actually really nice and you did a very professional job. This really ugly lady came in and taught our sex ed. All the boys were all like, oh, sex ed, sex ed. You know, we were all like, oh, we're, we're, we're like 12 or 11 or something. We're like, ah, sex ed. You know, like we're all ginned up on this. And we're all like, it's going to be this hot, you know, we're all fantasizing. It's going to be this hot girl coming to teach us about sex. And then we find out it's going to be a nurse. And we're like, oh, you know, we're having like, you know, every fantasy off the, the back of an album cover or whatever, you know, we're like, oh my God. And then it's this really, really ugly lady. And the first thing she does is gets this really gross smile on her face and was like, I like sex a lot. And I'm like, oh my God. We all were like, ah, and she laughed and laughed and laughed. It was like this kind of like back in the day, there was this weird sadism in teaching sometimes. I don't think you're allowed to do anymore. And so she knew she grossed us all out. And then she had some point about how it's like you have to engage in it responsibly or it's a disaster afterwards. But at any rate, let me just point out, uh, understanding that sex should be enjoyable and consensual. Um, yeah, I'm hundred percent with you on the consensual part, but holy shit, like stop talking to kids about whether or not sex is pleasurable. This is not okay. This needs to stop. This the groomer groomer alarm is going off. We're like eight alarms. We're going to nine alarms now. Next one is going to be worse. Understanding that sex is much more than just sexual intercourse. Well, this is why they actually are teaching kids about things like having orgasm through anal sex in schools. This is a scandal that just broke in one of these schools. That the news was all over it in the past two weeks. And there's lots of other things that it, they don't need to be teaching children about. Um, the the book Gender Queer, which is kind of at the center of groomer schools, comes to mind about some of the things that they show in there, which I would repeat what they are, except one of these, I did that in a previous episode of this particular podcast series, and it's the only one that YouTube demonetized because I said bad words that are the things that are in Gender Queer, which would tell you a lot about that. Sexuality is a healthy and normal part of everybody's life. Well, you know... No, everybody's adult life. Ah, but it doesn't say that, does it? And they're teaching this to kids. The biology and emotions behind the human sexual response. You know, that's a bit granular. You really don't need to be talking about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all this crap. And you, you don't with kid. You don't. Gender and pleasure. Well, that's an odd he heading. Like no. That's where we're going to get trans joy. And I know that that's the case because I looked this up to get more information about it for this podcast. And one of the first things it started talking about was joy. And then one of the first things it said below that was trans joy. And trans joy refers, I think, to the um, euphoria, the euphoric honeymoon period that uh, they say is typical of the trans experience when they finally get acceptance. But what it is, is 
it's being love bombed and sometimes feeling like they're finally on their way and all their problems are going to be solved and they have this miraculous intervention. And sometimes it's literally just a positive feeling side effect of testosterone, which is a pretty potent drug. And this creates this euphoric state that lasts maybe 18 to 24 months, sometimes at the longest, and then wears off. And then it's really bad. Uh, trans joy is a lie. And gender and pleasure is something that's should freak all of us out in this context. Sexual well-being, way too vague, not good. Safer sex practices and pleasure. I don't know if they're going to try to tell kids that like raw dogging it feels better or what. I don't know what they're going to do, but that's like, I'm not comfortable with any of these people. Oh, there's the next one. Masturbation. Hmm. There you go. No, no, do not teach kids about masturbation. Do not teach kids about masturbation. Do not. And no, zero. Ten alarm groomer fire. Love, lust, and relationships. Don't trust these people to touch that. Interpersonal communication. I don't know about this either. The diversity of sexuality. Nope. It's going to be full on um, queer theory, gender-bred person, etc. The first sexual experience. We really don't need to be going into that. Uh, there are maybe some medical issues that you might bring up, that, but that's it. Consent. Okay. Alcohol, yeah, that one's probably important. Drugs and the implications of their use, if that's being done responsibly, but God only knows, these people will be telling kids that ecstasy makes it better or something. Like, I don't trust these groomers to do this. Address, because this is about pleasure, right? Drugs, implications, and use. This isn't just about, this isn't under the medical number two. This is in pleasure number four. So alcohol, drugs, and the implications of their use. Addressing stigma associated with pleasure. That's telling kids it's okay for you to enjoy this. Like, hell no. Stop the groomer, 10 alarm groomer fire. Groomer, 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 groomer. How many times do I do that? Like, groomer, groomer, 10. Okay, whatever. Yikes. Okay. Five, violence. Exploring the various types of violence toward men and women. I'm sure that's going to be handled very unbiased in an unbiased fashion and how they manifest particularly gender-based violence so you're it's going to be the trans genocide for sure that freaking lie um non-consensual sex and understanding what is acceptable i don't know if y'all know that there's this thing that's out there with kind of unhappy young people called consensual non-consent sounds like a contradiction but it's basically you know you can do whatever you want with me without consent, but I'm giving you consent in advance. And then if I say no, you can get you. It's really kind of weird and messed up. It's like a kink thing. If I know about that, I bet you that's going to get covered by some of these groomer weirdo people. Rights and laws. All right. Support options available in seeking help. Hey, quick, go to Planned Parenthood. Community norms and myths regarding power and gender. So we're going to go into whole, all of Susan Brown Miller's lies about sex being or rape being power only and nothing to do with sex and all this other crap that the feminists got wrong. Prevention, including personal safety plans. This is for violence that might be okay. Self-defense techniques. That's maybe good but iffy. I'm pretty sure I don't want these people trying to teach self-defense and I don't think they're bringing in like a BJJ guy to teach it and teaching a child self-defense against an assailant can be a little bit that's a delicate area understanding the dynamics of victims and abusers oh so they're going to do darvo and you'll just leave that hanging appropriate referral mechanisms for survivors 
preventing the victim from becoming a perpetrator, men and boys as both perpetrators and allies in violence prevention. So that's going to be through a blatantly feminist lens. That's going to be crap. Uh, just an excuse to do feminist propaganda. Uh, and then six, diversity, recognizing and understanding the range of diversity in our lives. For examples, faith, culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, ability, disability, HIV status, and sexual orientation. You know, that's an awful lot of things that are not anything to do with sexuality education that are getting, it's just a carte blanche to use CSE as an excuse to do woke identity politics. A positive view of diversity, well, of course, recognizing discrimination, its damaging effects, and being able to manage it, yet more woke bullcrap, uh, developing a belief in equality, they mean equity and full equality in the communist sense, so more woke bullcrap, supporting young people to move beyond just tolerance, I guess into liberating tolerance, beyond just tolerance into celebration, acceptance, participation, and also liberating tolerance, which means that you are absolutely intolerant of anything except those things. This is straight up communist strategy why that is part of comprehensive sexuality education when it's not even about sexuality specifically is so that they can have the wide open door uh, to um, do woke stuff through the back door of, oh, we're bringing in comprehensive sexuality education. So if you get rid of all the other woke stuff, but they still have the comprehensive sexuality education, they now have an open door to do all of the woke stuff and call it comprehensive sexuality education. Seven, relationships. You can guess where this is going. Different types of relationships, families, friends, sexual, romantic, etc. It seems like something the school doesn't have to cover, right? That relationships are constantly changing. That's not good. Maybe family ones become sexual, or what are we talking about here? Like, I don't trust you groomers. Emotions, wide open territory. Intimacy, emotional and physical. Rights and responsibilities. Power dynamics. Aha, uh -huh. see, I told you all the critical stuff is about power dynamics. That's going to be woke crazy town right there. Recognizing healthy and unhealthy or coercive relationships. There was at one point a few years ago when there was this, you know, the so-called third wave radical feminism push was at its kind of crescendo where there were actually people saying serious people, but not like it wasn't like a mainstream narrative, but um, serious people that were saying that uh, a woman can never con technically consent to sex at all because there's always a power dynamic of male over female that intimidates her. So it's always non-consensual. In other words, all heterosexual sex is rape. Just to point out that um, that's potentially on the table in this. That's that's extreme. I'm not saying that's what they're going to do. But that was a thing that was pushed about 10 years ago. I remember laughing about it and being horrified by it at the same time. You know that horrified laugh we all have to have so that we don't go crazy under a regime? Yeah, that. Um, so where are we? Uh recognizing healthy and unhealthy or coercive relationships. Yeah, fucking right. If they were doing that, they would throw all these groomers out of the school. The kids would rebel. They're teaching them to not do that. Communication, trust and honesty and relationships, peer pressure and social norms, that love and sex are not the same. What they're going to teach them is, in fact, that um, anybody who tells you that this woke stuff is wrong is in an unhealthy, coercive relationship with you. And we're not unhealthy or coercing you or forcing you to believe things or setting you up for a, a Maoist brainwashing session or anything exhortative or, or coercive or, or whatever. It's so backwards. But anyway, these are the seven pillars of um, comprehensive sexuality education, just to read them off quickly. Once again, gender, sexual and reproductive health and HIV, sexual rights and sexual citizenship, yikes, 
pleasure, 10 alarm groomer fire, violence, diversity, and relationships. And of course, the source of this is the IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, which, by the way, was coordinating this and channels it through the UNESCO, which UNESCO is the actual or originator of the idea of comprehensive sexuality education and pushing comprehensive sexuality education not just through to the United States, but to all 193 member states. Actually, the United Nations has 193 member countries. I don't know how many UNESCO has. You don't have to be signed up for both of them technically. But at any rate, all their member states. Okie dokie. Now, why did I come back to this today? Because I was sent this paper from February 2020 in the American Journal of Public Health called Pleasure in Sex Education, The Need for Broadening Both Content and Measurement by Leslie Cantor, PhD, MPH, that's Master in Public Health, and Laura Lindbergh, PhD. I'm not looking up where they're from. Actually, maybe I should. I don't really care, but let's see. Leslie M. Cantor is with the Rutgers School of Public Health in Newark, New Jersey. Laura Lindbergh is with the Guttmacher Institute in New York, New York. Aren't we glad we did that? Oh my goodness. And so there you go. Hmm. What tangled webs we weave. By the way, this is actually one of those little white pills you run into sometimes, which is that... Um, these things aren't as big as they look like they are. They're made to look like they're everywhere all the, all the time in everything. But when you start looking, you actually just end up coming back to the same few dozen things over and over and over again, which tells you it's, it's, it's a surmountable problem. Now, this is a peer-reviewed paper. It says on right here, which I've never seen at the top of a paper, it says peer-reviewed. And then the first thing it lists before even the abstract is a list of recommended other resources. So I'll just read these titles because they're eye-opening. See also the public health of pleasure going beyond disease prevention. See also promoting positive sexual health. I'm not going to read any of those papers, but just listen. See also should public health professionals consider pornography a public health crisis? See also a pornography literacy program for adolescents. See also structuring sexual pleasure, equitable access to biomedical HIV pre uh, prevention for black men who have sex with men. And see also a call for renewed commitment to sexual health, sexual rights, and sexual pleasure, a matter of health and well-being. These are all other papers that are in the American Journal of Public Health, Volume 110, which is the same volume as this particular paper. Abstract. Sex education in the United States is limited in both its content and the measures used to collect data on what is taught. The risk reduction framework that guides the teaching of sex education in the United States focuses almost exclusively on avoiding unintended pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, overlooking other critical topics such as the information and skills needed to form healthy relationships and content related to sexual pleasure. So now you see why, instead of just reading this, I started off by going through the seven principles of comprehensive sexuality education from a document that happens to be from the exact same organization as one of the contributing authors to this paper happens to be. The goal is that they don't want sex ed to be sex ed. They don't want it to be about medical stuff. They don't want it to be about HIV or STD pre prevention and protection. They don't want it to be about basic mechanical biological or mechanical facts or biological facts. They don't want it to be about that. That is not enough. 
It is not enough for to be un avoiding unintended pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases. It overlooks relationship building and sexual pleasure. Germer School Central. They say young people express frustration. Why? All right, before I read the rest of that. Young people express frustration. It's not our fault that we have to do this. The young people are coming to us. They're demanding that we teach them about sex. They're coming to us. Teacher, 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 public health official, teach us about the sexual pleasure. They're not. The generative themes model is designed to get children to think about these things, to start asking questions about these things, and then these perverts use that as justification to say the young people are demanding information, so we have to give it to them. What you'll notice in woke crap everywhere, and bureaucratic crap everywhere actually, is that nobody's ever at fault for frickin' anything. It's always somebody above me said I had to, or somebody below me demanded it. It wasn't my fault. I was going along with what I asked. There's a complete, complete deferral of responsibility, upward or downward, and in this case, it's downward. You see this the same thing. The corporations is what Klaus Schwab writes about the, in, in the great narrative for, the, for a better future. He says that the corporations will all adopt the Sustainable Development Goals and ESG to facilitate them because there'll be top-down pressure from the governments and from the banks on the one hand through their ESG scoring and through policy and through incentive structures. And on the other hand, there'll be a bottom-up pressure from the consumer and from the potential employees who will demand a more sustainable and inclusive corporate world. So it's the CEOs, their hands are tied. Somebody above them said they have to. Thank God somebody said we have to do this terrible thing we didn't want to do, but that actually crushes all of our competition for us. Or somebody below them doing, oh, thank God, we're just satisfying demand. It's not our fault that we happen to be doing this thing so that our ESG score will go up uh, very cynically for our own benefit. It's that the consumer demanded it. Like seven people wanted Gay Bud Light, so we had to make Gay Bud Light for everybody. Do you see the game? Okay, so here, young people express frustration about the lack of information on sexuality and sexual behavior that is included in their sex education programs. Sexual and gender minority youths in particular feel overlooked by current approaches. Oh, imagine that. It's the ones that have been groomed by the generative themes to speak up and complain. What a shock. James Lindsay was right. Hashtag James Lindsay was right. Once again, International guidance provides a more robust framework for developing and measuring sex education and suggests a number of areas in which United States sex education can improve to better meet the needs of youths. See, it's all about the youths and their needs. It's not about the agenda at UNESCO and the IPPF and the Guttmacher Institute, conflict of interest noted at the top. It's not about the agenda, it's about the needs of youth, which the stakeholders at the agenda-setting places decided that they know what they are because they can, what they do is they do the generative themes thing and then they get a few kids to complain and say, look, the youth need this. Neat little thing where you like cast a magic spell and create the thing that you actually wanted to do in the first place. You create the demand for the thing you wanted in the first place that you might call alchemy. Like when George Soros wrote The Alchemy of Finance, and that's literally the program of The Alchemy of Finance, which is how he made all of his billions of dollars that he now uses to destroy countries. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat that they're wizards, like James said? Um, okay, sex education, to, now the actual paper, not abstract. The sex, it says sex education is the one school subject that is supposed to provide adolescents with the information and skills they need to navigate relationships. No, it isn't. Understand sex and sexuality. Kind of. And find the resources they need for obtaining additional information in relevant health services. No, that's your Planned Parenthood backdoor. That's not what it's for, actually. 
those relevant inform additional information and relevant health services are talk to your parents. Let me give you the whole comprehensive list. We're going to give you some very basic medical and biological information. And if you need additional information and relevant health services, talk to your parents. That's the start and end. That's it. That's all. That's all it should be. But no, this is something different. Despite often being framed in the United States as a tool for risk reduction, quality sex education should be guided by the broader goals of supporting young people's sexual health and well-being and helping them grow into sexually healthy adults. No, the schools do not have that role. And okay, groomer. In the United States, available guidelines for sex education include the Guidelines for Comprehensive Sexuality Education K-12, which were first published by the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, SECUS, in 1991. Amazing that that just cropped up in like the second paragraph, right? Remember, SECUS is a communist front organization and have been updated twice, most recently in 2004 and the National Sexuality Education Standards, published by the Future of Sex Education Initiative in 2011. These guidelines, as well as international guidelines for sex education, especially the recent UNESCO International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education, UNESCO, see, identify learning objectives in key areas that embrace a broad view of sexuality, including relationships, gender skills for health and well-being. No, sorry, there's a comma there. G relationships, Gender, not gender skills, just gender. Skills for health and well-being and sexuality and sexual behavior. There's groomer alarms are going off, right? The available research on sex education in the United States reveals that most young people receive instruction on only a small subset of these topics. Good. With greatest attention given more uh, to more narrowly focused risk reduction topics. Good. Even the measures used to ascertain what young people are learning are largely confined to these risk reduction topics. Good. Focusing on these topics and measures overlooks many key aspects of young people's current and future sexual lives. Good. Including the ability to form and maintain healthy relationships. Not your business. The right to decide whether, when, and with whom to engage in sexual behavior. Not the school's business. And the fact that sex should be pleasurable. Okay, groomer, to name just a few. Thus, the narrow content of sex education in the United States need to, needs to expand to focus more on sexual health than sexual risk. Well, sexual health, we just heard all the things it includes, so absolutely not. Absolutely not, but that's the Trojan horse to let Planned Parenthood come in and offer sexual health services in the schools. That's practically what that means. But also, we'll probably see CDC oversight coming into the schools as well. Surveillance metrics also need parallel expansion beyond risk prevention. Traditional public health goals for sex education in the United States have largely focused on helping young people to avoid unintended pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections, STIs, and the proximate sexual and contraceptive behaviors related to these outcomes. Okay, there's a problem here. The federal government's Healthy People 2020 objectives related to sex education only include target levels for adolescents' receipts of formal instruction about abstinence, birth control methods, HIV, AIDS, and STIs. These narrow objectives reflect and inform the collection of national surveillance data. Okay, so that's, that's the problem, okay? It's too narrow that we're actually not doing all this grooming stuff, so they have to fix that. But I want to point out what happened, what's going on here. When we look at what we just heard, 
especially that part about backdoor to 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 Planned Parenthood and even the CDC coming into the schools. I want you to have a broad picture of what's happening in in the world. The goal is to move every service possible into the schools. They call this the community school model, the WISC, whole, what is it, W-S-C-C, whole school, whole community, whole child model for education, that things are lurching, heaving toward. And comprehensive sexuality education is a huge part of that because all sexual health services get to move into the school, which is a medical service, gets to move into the school as a part of comprehensive sexuality education fully realized. So now the school isn't just a place for doing education. It's now a place to receive sexual health and sexual health services. We also have that happening with mental and behavioral health services. So the school is slowly becoming a clinic and a hospital. Now it's already adopted with lunch programs and free food and all this crap nutritional support, and it could become a nutritional center. The goal is to turn whole school, whole community, whole child, the school into the hub of everything going on in the community centered on the children and making things as convenient as possible for their parents as the excuse to do it. But the schools are the wokest, most broken, most corrupt thing in our communities. And so you can imagine what the real purpose of all of this is, besides to make buku bucks off of bringing Medicaid and et cetera into the schools. Current national surveillance efforts, and back to the paper, the three main data sets that are used to gather information, this is the boring part, about the receipt of sex education in the United States are the school health profiles, SHP. So these are things that people that want to go dig in rabbit holes. Pay attention. The school health profiles, SHP, the School Health Policies and Practices Study, SHPPS, and the National Survey of Family Growth, NSFG. So you may want to back up and write those down if you want to do some rabbit holes. These are broad federal data collection efforts with a limited set of sex education measures. The NSFG, that's National Survey of Family Growth, conducted by the United States National Center for Health Statistics, is a nationally representative household survey that has tracked young people's receipt of sex education since 1982. It has interviewed adolescents directly about receipt of different topics over time, with a focus on instructions about saying no to sex, waiting until marriage to have sex, birth control methods, and STI slash HIV prevention. The NSFG measures are not designed to collect information about the quality of instruction, the amount of instruction, or even much about its content or tone. Oh no, the government has a very hands-off approach here. For example, the survey item that asks if adolescents were taught about, quote, methods of birth control does not distinguish between instruction that presents contraception in a positive or negative manner. Further, the pedagogical approach is completely the pedagogical approach used is completely ignored. For example, a didactic presentation on methods of contraception is very different from asking students to role play talking to a potential partner about using birth control. Eee. However, for either of these approaches, an NSFG respondent would be expected to answer that they were taught about birth control. Additionally, young people are only asked to report on the age at which they first receive sex education, providing no information about instruction as they get older. Despite these limitations, in addition to its use in general surveillance, multiple studies have used NSFG data to link receipt of formal sex education to adolescent sexual and reproductive health behaviors and outcomes. Now, they do have actually a legitimate point here that this data is not very granular, or these data are not very granular, I should say, and that 
If this were being collected and offered in a transparent and unbiased way, that kind of data would be very helpful to finding out where the groomer programs are that are making kids role play sex, um, which we don't have. So I, I see their complaint. Uh, but on the other hand, um, of course, they want an excuse to open the floodgates of data collection and use that data collection for, for making sure that they have the most radical programs everywhere. Continuing. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, told you they're getting involved, conducts two key surveillance efforts, the SHP and the SHPPS, that monitor many school health policies and practices, including health education, and collect data on the provision of sex education. The SHP monitors school health policies and practices in 48 states, 21 large urban school districts, and four territories. It covers a broader range of sex education topics than the NSFG, monitoring, monitoring provision of 19 specific sexual health topics in grades 6 through 12, and some information about instruction prior to the 6th grade, as well as some measures of relevant teacher training. The complementary SHPPS is a national survey conducted periodically at the state, district, school, and classroom levels. The SHPPS includes measures of requirements for sex education on topics focused around pregnancy prevention, STI-HIV prevention and human sexuality, including some indicators of teacher training and classroom time spent on these topics. I told you this is the boring part. Both the SHP and SHPPS data are collected from school administrators and teachers, not from young people themselves, so they likely reflect what is supposed to be taught rather than what students actually receive. See yet another subtle call for let's survey these students about sex more, which we don't want that. Additionally, the CDC collects the youth behavior uh, youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System, YRBS, so I'll say that again, Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System, a nationally representative survey of high school students from 1993 to 2013, the YRBS asked a single item about the receipt of HIV slash AIDS education, but this question was removed in 2015. All of these U.S. surveillance systems focus on topics using a risk reduction framework, good, and do not examine many broader sexual health promotion topics such as communication or relationships, despite national guidelines for sex education that include these topics. I wonder if those came from UNESCO. For example, one of the only communication measures in the SHP is, quote, use interpersonal communication skills to avoid or reduce sexual risk behaviors, end quote. The SHP has a single measure to ascertain what middle school and high school students receive in sex education related to relationships, quote, how to create and sustain healthy and respectful relationships, end quote. The NSFG measures of instruction about, quote, how to say yes, uh, so, sorry, quote, how to say no to sex, end quote, or, quote, waiting until marriage to have sex, end quote, might generously be construed as indicators of communication and relationship topics. So they're not happy with the data. They want more data. I would say that they want more data so they can push further into making sure that these UNESCO guidelines are covered because that's where we're going next. The next section, I kid you not, expanding surveillance to include pleasure. They want to collect data. That's what surveillance means. What they're tracking data on the kids to include pleasure. Remember, that's point number four, deep into the yeesh 10 alarm groomer fire territory comprehensive sexuality education. By contrast, the recent UNESCO guidance suggests numerous learning objectives related to the topic, quote, friendship, love, and romantic relationships, end quote, which is only one of four topics included in the section on relationships. There are 14 objectives related to, quote, friendship, love, and romantic relationships for children aged 5 to 8 years, 10 objectives for ages 9 to 12 years, 
11 for ages 12 to 15 years, and 7 for ages to 15, uh, ages 15 to 18 years. That's a lot of very granular, you know, uh, activity through what will amount to be social emotional learning programs to get up in kids' faces about how they're supposed to form friendship, love, and romantic relationships. Remember, these are their teachers at school that are doing this. Somehow the teachers have become the surrogate parents. Uh, in loco parentis has become something way closer to like a live-in au pair or something for all these years. 14 objectives related to friendship, love, and romantic relationships for kids 5 to 8 years old, 10 when they're 9 to 12, 11 for 12 to 15, and 7 more for, fi for 15 to 18 years old. This is the UNESCO guidance. But then there's also the SICUS guidance. It says, it says both the older SICUS guidelines for comprehensive sexuality education and the national sexuality education standards identify the importance of including topics related to communication and healthy relationships, although they offer a narrower and less detailed set of objectives than recent UNESCO guidance. Still, none of these three sets of guidelines could be adequately monitored with U current U.S. surveillance measures given their narrow focus on risk reduction topics. See, so they want more surveying on the pleasure stuff and friendship building, relationships, how they, romantic relationships, etc. An examination of the UNESCO recommended topics related to sexual pleasure. Jesus, why does that exist? Shows even more of a discrepancy between important sexuality topics and what is taught and measured in the United States. I just want to back up again and remind you that we're talking about what kids are being taught at school, down to five years old. An examine of the UNESCO recommended topics related to sexual pleasure. Why does that exist? Why is that a thing? They can't do math, but that, why? There are several learning recommendations related to pleasure in the UNESCO technical guidance, including, quote, describe ways that human beings feel pleasure from physical contact. Example, kissing, touching, caressing, sexual contact throughout their life, end quote, which is a learning objective for children aged 9 to 12 years. You want me to read that again? No, you don't want to hear it again. You're going to hear it again. There are several, let me read it slower. There are, let these words hit your brain now that you know what's coming. There are several learning, learning recommendations related to pleasure in the UNESCO technical guidance, including, quote, describe ways that human beings feel pleasure from physical contact, for example, kissing, touching, caressing, sexual contact throughout their life, end quote, which is a learning objective for children aged 9 to 12 years. Quote, State that sexual feelings, fantasies, and desires are natural and not shameful and occur throughout life, end quote, which is a learning objective for those aged 12 to 15 years. Quote, understand that sexual stimulation involves physical and psychological aspects and people respond in different ways at different times, end quote which is a learning objective for those aged 12 to 15 years, and which includes a key area for ages 15 and older that, quote, engaging in sexual behaviors should feel pleasurable and comes with associated responsibilities for one's health and well-being, end quote. How we doing, Mom? How we doing, Dad? Comprehensive sexuality education. How we doing? That's the stuff. This is their papers. This is direct UNESCO guidelines, targets, recommendations for what that should include. This paper is complaining that we don't have 
a surveillance mechanism in the federal government or the CDC to track that data in your children to see if those goals are being met by their teachers adequately. Not to even see if their teachers are teaching it, but to see from the students themselves if they are receiving that information from the teachers adequately. How are we doing with this? How do you feel with that? They continue. The CECAS guidelines do not include pleasure as a separate topic, although some messages related to pleasure are included. For example, under the topic of, quote, shared sexual behavior, a suggested message is, quote, couples have varied ways to share sexual pleasure with each other, end quote. Regardless, the United States surveillance systems ignore topics related to pleasure completely. Ignoring pleasure not only leaves out a salient component of sexual health, but may also put young people at risk for reduced use of contraceptions and condoms, as there is evidence that concerns about reductions in pleasure act as a barrier to both contraception and condom use. Further, failing to address pleasure may have implications for sexual coercion, as sex education may be one of the only places that young people learn that sex should be pleasurable and not used in manipulative and harmful ways. How are we doing with that, mom and dad? See, it's not your job to teach your children that what healthy sex sexuality looks like. The only place they might actually learn that and learn not to be sexually manipulated is from their teachers at school doing a UNESCO program from the United Nations. Indeed, a recent study found that school-based sex education that included instruction in refusal skills prior to college was protective against likelihood of experiencing sexual assault once in college. Now, we have to be cautious there, of course. That sounds somewhat good. But we have to be cautious there, of course, because um, we remember that they expanded the definition of sexual assault very famously. In fact, the Obama administration repeated this when he was president. Uh, he said this as something like one in five young women is sexually assaulted at school, which is at college or whatever or in their lifetime. This isn't true. They used an extraordinarily expansive definition and convinced a bunch of young women that they have all this trauma that they don't actually have, uh, which of course, then they can exploit the trauma because then they need to have special treatment for their trauma and they all become angry feminists. Um, this is actually the part though, where it get that, that, that part's pretty bad, but this is the part where it, and we're getting actually close to the end of this paper, very close to the end. There's only one section left. I told you it's short. This is the part where there's some truly concerning things. Um, youth perspectives in the current landscape, the last section, if we look beyond, remember this is a American journal of public health is the journal here. If we look beyond these national surveillance systems, we find that when asked about sex education, young people are dissatisfied with the dearth of messages related to positive aspects of sexuality and the narrow ways that sex is discussed. So that's the opener. We'll go on. But remember when I did this short podcast, a bullet called the SEL cycle, where I said what they do is they poll the kids and then they selectively interpret the, the survey data to justify bringing in more SEL. Oh my gosh, so many kids are experiencing depression or anxiety. They're upset with these vaguely worded questions. So we need more mental health interventions. So we have to justify more SEL coming in. That's the SEL cycle. This is what I called that. Here we are. So they've started to use, if we look beyond these surveillance systems, when we survey the kids about sex education, what we find is that young people, it doesn't say how many, it doesn't say any statistics, I think. Oh, maybe there are some down below. Sorry. So we'll come back to that. There are some statistics. There are none in this paragraph. Young people are dissatisfied with the dearth of messages related to the positive aspects of sexuality and the narrow ways that sex is discussed. So apparently they're saying the kids want them to talk about pleasure and so on. For example, they said in a qualitative analysis of stakeholders, 
Okay, that's, we already know we're dealing with bullshit. Qualitative analysis, there's no quantitative, and there's no statistics involved in a qualitative analysis of stakeholders. Stakeholders is one of those words that gets to mean whatever the hell they think it conveniently means. It means, sounds like it means the people who have some stake in this issue, but they can be very curated groups of such. In a qualitative analysis of stakeholders, including youths, which means they didn't just survey a representative sample of the relevant young people, they added other people, in a qualitative analysis of stakeholders, including youths, adolescents frequently mentioned the lack of discussion about pleasure as a reason they were frustrated with sex education. I can't even imagine that being a thing. But a responsible school would say, "That's we are not supposed to teach you that. The, but we have this Frarian pedagogy where the child is put the center of their own education, which justifies doing the generative project and bringing them into a facilitation into conscientization. The experience of sexual and gender minority youths is even worse, with young people feeling either overlooked or subjected to information that is exclusively heteronormative. There we have the generative thing. They teach them all about all this stuff about how gay people are overlooked, not represented, oppressed, not presented, blah, blah, blah. And then they get them to complain about it. And then the survey says people, young people complained about it. Some adolescents complained. So now we have to do more of it. You see the scam. Providing instruction that is inclusive of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, LGBT, youths is important, and surveillance measures should monitor it. Remember, this data is going to get passed through selective filters that justify more of the program. That's the SEL cycle. That's what it's going to be used for. The SHP has only a single yes-no item in the teacher questionnaire. Does your school provide curricula or supplementary materials that include HIV, STD, or pregnancy prevention information that is relevant to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning youth, for example, curricula or materials that use inclusive language or terminology, end quote. This single item excludes other pertinent issues, including ensuring that all students are taught about sexual orientation and gender identity, in other words, gender ideology and queer theory, that LGBT relationships are recognized throughout the curriculum, more generative themes, and that prevention information is conveyed in a manner that does not alienate or overlook sexual and gender minority students. What we know about what young people receive in schools reveals that many receive a dearth of sex education and that what is received can vary considerably by state. For example, the SHP data show that in grades 6 through 8, the percentage of schools that reported teaching all 19 sexual health topics remained uh, examined varied widely from 5.1% of schools in Arizona to 40.2% in Mexico, in New Mexico, sorry. In high schools, the percentage of schools that covered all 19 topics varied from 4.5% in Utah to 84.4% in New Jersey. The NSFG documents that uh, although 80% or more of adolescents aged 15 to 19 years report receipt of instruction about HIV-AIDS, STIs or abstinence-focused topics, instruction about birth control methods including where to obtain a method and how to use a condom is less common. In the years 2011 to 13, only 57% of sexually experienced girls and 43% of sexually experienced boys reported receiving instruction about birth control methods prior to first sex. Okay, so that was the part with the statistics. That's the only paragraph with statistics. Now we've covered that. And since I paused before, I'm just going to point out those statistics are not relevant to what the previous paragraph was talking about. So I go back to my previous statement. All of what they claimed is based off of a qualitative study of select stakeholders. In other words, self-serving BS. 
So this whole thing, the, the whole section is really about, if we look beyond these national surveillance systems, we find that when asked about sex education, young people are dissatisfied with the dearth of messages related to positive aspects of sexuality and the narrow ways that sex is discussed is based on no data that are actually presented in any meaningful way whatsoever. None. It's just asserted so they can do more of everything they want to do. None of the data that they just offered that looks like numbers and stuff that caused me pause in saying what I wanted to say in the first place is relevant to what I just said. Zero of it. Not a bit. No effective data for that at all. None presented on this claim. There's just one uh, citation about uh, a study saying that, that there's a lack of discussion about pleasure as a reason they're frustrated with sex education. This is from the Boston Medical Journal. Is that what it is? BMJ. Uh, open 2016. Sorry. Pound P. Langford R. Campbell R. What do young people think about their school-based sex and relationship education? A qualitative synthesis of young people's views and experiences. My overwhelming experience with social science papers of BS quality tells me that that is BS. That's their whole basis for all of this. We need to focus on pleasure. Some young people were able to express frustration in some qualitative surveys. That's what they've got. That's what they've got. Idea laundered into existence. And so, um, some young people are frustrated in a set of bogus studies that don't even cover really the topic that they really need for it to cover. Therefore, everything we do is inadequate and we need to bring all this crap in. This is how they play the game. The situation in the United States reflects our particular cultural and political framings of sex education. Both receipt of sex education and surveillance in some other countries are more robust. For example, in Australia, the National Survey of Australian Secondary Students has been undertaken about every five years since 1992. The Sexual Health Survey asks youth a wide range of knowledge, self-efficacy, and behavior questions about topics ranging from confidence and talking to parents about subjects related to sexuality and whether... Imagine what they would do with that. I don't feel safe talking to my parents about sexuality. Guess who's coming? Child Protective Services. You've already got states setting up as sanctuary states from their own parents and from parents in other states. California, Washington, Vermont, all exploring this. I think Minnesota, exploring this. Can't remember if Minnesota is doing that or not, but I think they they are. All these super blue, idiotic states doing this. Um, This sexual uh, health survey asks youth a wide range of knowledge, self-efficacy, and behavior questions about topic ranging from confidence in talking to parents about subjects related to sexuality to whether they have engaged in a variety of sexual behaviors, none of the school's effing business or the government's, including kissing, oral sex, and intercourse. The survey also asks students about sources of information, including what they received in schools, in which classes they received the instruction, and how relevant they found the information to be. In Canada, although there is no ongoing government monitor, monitoring of sex education, the National Civil Society Organization, Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights, is currently undertaking a comprehensive assessment of sex education in all provinces with a tool they developed using UNESCO technical guidance as an underpinning, as I keep trying to tell people. The British National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles asks about the receipt of 14 sex education topics, including masturbation, how to make sex more satisfying, and sexual feelings, emotions, and relationships. Additionally, young people are asked about their perceived unmet information needs. 
Young people deserve sex education that is relevant to their lives and includes the knowledge, attitudes, and skills they need in both their current stage of development and throughout their lives. Guidelines, programs, and measures of sex education ought to include the full range of sex education topics and should also include items related to the pedagogy of sex education, including teaching approaches and student engagement. Is that the role-playing part? Recent international guidance, there's your UNESCO, provides a roadmap for broadening the U.S. approach to sex education. The United States should join other countries in making an effort to make perverts out of their, oh, sorry, making an effort to strengthen sex education provision and surveillance, including updating available guidelines for sex education and broadening measures needed to use, uh, sorry, broadening the measures used to assess sex education. The authors have no conflicts of interest to declare. Um, so this is this is it. And that big paragraph actually where I paused the UNESCO part, I'm going to read that one more time because that's really the spot. I thought it was that last section. No, it's this paragraph right before that last section where I really paused. UNESCO recommended topics, right? There are several learning recommendations. I'm just going to read this one more time. This is the whole point. So we're talking about comprehensive sexuality education, which is a UNESCO project that started there in 2003. They are leveraging all of their member countries, now obviously including the United States, to take this up. Comprehensive sexuality education is the seven pillars, the seven program areas, one of which is pleasure, one of which is sexual citizenship, one of which is gender, and the idea, one of which is relationships, which is none of the school's business, and they're trying to foist this into the schools. And that pleasure one is Groomer City, so Groomer Schools Five. And this is what this is what this this paper from the American Journal of Public Health has to say about the UNESCO technical guidance that it includes for. Let me get the line. This I'm going to read it kind of out of order. For nine to twelve year olds, it includes. Describing ways that human beings feel pleasure from physical contact, for example, kissing, touching, caressing, sexual contact throughout their life. 9 to 12 years old. Talking the school, talking about to your 9-year-old how kissing, touching, caressing, and having sex is pleasurable. For 12 to 15-year-olds, the UNESCO guidance includes for comprehensive sexuality education that they state that sexual feelings, fantasies, and desires are natural and not shameful and occur throughout life, and that they understand that sexual stimulation involves physical and psychological aspects and people respond in different ways at different times. And for 15-year-olds specifically, going further to say engaging in sexual behaviors should feel pleasurable and comes with associated responsibilities for one's health and well-being. This is your... Groomer School's Introduction to Comprehensive Sexuality Education. This is um, really a tip of the iceberg. Everything taught in there, all of your gender unicorn, all of this masturbation, all of the porn lessons in schools, whether it's the porn books in the libraries that are serving as generative themes or drag queen story hours serving as generative themes, but also teaching literal pornography literacy program classes often to college students or high school is coming down through this UNESCO guidance on comprehensive sexuality education, which is granular down to five-year-olds, down to kindergartners. They have all of these agendas for how they're going to build relationships, how they're going to make friendships, how, they, how they're going to integrate sex and sexuality, relevance of gender and sexual orientation into everything at every level. And that's how it's actually being brought in. And if it didn't give you the heebie-jeebies enough, and it's not weird enough that it's coming from the United Nations, it's coming in partnership. The framework for comprehensive sexuality education was borrowed from UNESCO and developed into a specific form by the IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Foundation 
whatever the occult roots of the Planned Parenthood Foundation might be, the idea that Planned Parenthood, an expressly activist organization that's overwhelmingly tied up with abortion and destigmatization of STDs, um, overwhelmingly, the fact that they are integrating into our schools should be alarming and that they're comprehensive sexuality education is their back door, and that this is tied to a broader program to integrate them even more fully so that sexual services, courtesy of Planned Parenthood perhaps, are offered as a clinic facility through the school under the whole school, whole child, or sorry, whole school, whole community, whole child, WSCC, WISC model, is, is positively alarming. And so the groomer school's phenomenon is far more, not to play a pun on the word, but yeah, comprehensive than um, one might have thought. And I think it's a very important issue. I think parents need to be much more aware of this. I think there are a bajillion rabbit holes. I urge you to follow Kelly Ski and find SKE and find out about this and learn a lot more about this. I know the Heritage Foundation, Jay Richards at the Heritage Foundation is working in this domain very well. I encourage you to look into what's going on there. As far as the uh, sex gender thing, Colin Wright and Christina Buttons are doing great work. You should be paying attention to what they have to say. This is super important and getting into whether it's the organizational corrupt, you know, UNESCO side of it or the nitty gritty, you know, what is gender ideology? What is queer theory? Of course, you can listen to my podcast about queer Marxism, queer Gnosticism, uh, queer theory in general. You can read the stuff that I've written like in Cynical Theories or on, on New Discourses or listen to the other podcasts. This is crucial to start to understand so that we can can wheel this back. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this new, new, new addition to the Groomer Schools podcast series here on the Discourses podcast, and I will uh, catch you on the next one.